All right, good morning. I hope that you have your Bibles with you, that you already have them open up and ready to go. If not, I invite you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to Amos chapter 7. Here, from chapter 7 through the end of Amos, God is going to share with Amos five different visions. These visions were pictures of the total destruction that the Lord was going to bring upon the northern kingdom of Israel. He was going to put an end uh, to the kingdom of Israel. And in, in fact, the northern kingdom would never rise as an independent government again. And so he shares with his prophet five visions. And so if you go to the end and we see by the time that we get to chapter 9, Amos sees the Lord standing beside the altar this was a vision of the finality of judgment that was to come. It was also a vision of the promise of his glorious kingdom. When we get to chapter 8, Amos sees a, a, a ripe basket. This was a picture uh, of how the, the children of Israel were ripe for judgment. Now, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 7, and here we find three different visions. All three visions were visions of judgment. And so we're going to begin with the first vision, and that is the vision of locusts. Follow along as I read, beginning in verse number one. It says, Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crop began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord, God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Here we see how Amos agonized for his people, agonized for his people so much that he, he cried out to God, asking him to suspend his judgment. And God does. I want you to notice how he argued. Amos said that the nation was so small that they would never be able to survive the plague of locusts. And noticing that, I also want you to notice what, what Amos didn't argue. Amos didn't plead any of the covenant promises of God because Amos knew that the people had violated their covenant relationship with God and were therefore worthy of being judged by him. Amos agonizes for his people. He cries out unto God for God to call off his judgment, and that's exactly what God did. There is a significant and beautiful spiritual truth that's captured in these verses, and I hope that you, you don't miss it. Severe trials can at times be pushed back, even prevented. This truth is, is almost too wonderful for us to comprehend. So how can this happen? How can this be? And here we see that it happens through, through intercessory prayer. So the present scripture teaches us a great lesson on intercessory prayer. We ought to continually seek the Lord on behalf of our family and our friends. We ought to continually, not just a one-and-done type of prayer, 
but we should be continually going to the Lord for, for important matters that, that are related on a local level, a national level, even an international scale. We ought to, as believers, we ought to be interceding on behalf of our community, our nation, and the world, crying out to God, asking God for some relief with the epidemic that we're faced with today. Amos was, was traumatized by what he saw, and he immediately began to cry out to the Lord, begging him to forgive the people of their wickedness. Because if the Lord wouldn't forgive them, then the nation would never survive. And although the people considered themselves a great nation in the sense of their prosperity, in the sense of their military power, they were very small and insignificant compared to the awesome power of God. And unless God had mercy upon the northern kingdom of Israel, there was no chance of her survival. So the prophet intercedes. So the prophet stood in the gap stood in the gap between the awful sins of the people and the holy wrath of God. He stood as an intercessor in behalf of people, begging God to forgive their terrible, evil deeds. And the Lord, the Lord heard his prayers, and he turned back the judgment. The Lord allowed the people more time the Lord gave them another opportunity for them to repent of their wickedness. In doing this, God further demonstrates his great love. God further demonstrates the longing of his heart for people to repent and to turn back to him. I mean, Mary herself captures this beautifully in her song and in Luke chapter 1, verse number 50, where she says, His mercy is upon generation after generation to, towards those who fear Him. And so Amos sees this first vision, the vision of locusts, and then he sees the second vision. The second vision was a vision of consuming fire. This was a picture of, of severe drought. Let's continue to read, beginning in verse 4 now. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob stand where he is small? The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Now, this drought that Amos saw, this picture of judgment was so severe that it scorched the land and it dried up all the waters of the land. It means the entire water supply from springs to streams to, to rivers, they had all dried up. All the vegetation throughout the nation was withering and dying under the, the scorching heat of the sun. And on top of all that, people and animals by the thousands were suffering and dying from, a, from, from their thirst. There was no hope of surviving this judgment whatsoever, not unless the Lord had mercy upon his people. And again, God's judgment 
so moved the prophet that he intercedes on their behalf, crying out to the Lord, asking God, stop. It's interesting. This time, instead of asking God to pardon or to forgive the nation, Amos simply cries out to God and asks God to stop. Here, he's not even asking for forgiveness. He's just asking God for more time. He's asking God to to show some of his great compassion. And again, God responds in grace, and he shows his long-suffering. He displays his great patience with the people. Then Amos is made aware of this third vision. The third vision was a vision of a plumb line. Now, a plumb line was an instrument that was used to test whether or not a, a, a wall was straight and true. What would happen is a man would stand at the top of a wall and he would drop a line down with a weight that was on the bottom of that line. And so the weight of the line would make the line straight. And by matching that line to the wall, uh, the workers could tell if the wall was straight or crooked. May you know that God's law is the plumb line. And he measures his people to see how they are in according to the pattern of his word. The question becomes, how does your character and how does your conduct, how does that measure up to the word of God? Oh, please understand, I'm not asking you, how does it measure up against other people? I'm not asking you how your character and your conduct measures up against the crowd. I'm not asking how it measures up against the latest opinion polls. No, how does your character and conduct measure up to the holy word and standards of God? Let's keep reading. Look at verse number 7. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be desolated and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So in in his vision, Amos heard the Lord ask him, hey, what do you see? And Amos immediately replies that he saw a plumb line. It was then that the Lord explained what he was doing. The Lord was checking the people to see if they were plumb, to see if they were straight, to see if they were in line with him. And what God discovered was disastrous. The people looked crooked. They were calloused. They were completely out of line because they were disobedient and rebellious. They were building their lives on the pattern other than the Word of God. And as a result, their lives were out of kilter. They were headed in the wrong direction. And it was for that reason that they were going to be destroyed. I want you to notice the statement at the end of verse number 8. It's certainly an, an ominous statement for the Lord to make. He says, I will spare them no longer, which means the nation has gone too far. There was now no hope 
of him withholding his judgment. I believe it's for this reason that Amos, unlike the other two times, Amos doesn't intercede as he has previously done. In fact, in verse number 9, God pronounced that both worship centers and the government, referred to as uh, the house of Jeroboam, God pronounced that both of them would be destroyed under God's hand of judgment. Now, when the chief priest, Amaziah, when this chief priest hears Amos and his prediction about the destruction of the nation, well, he immediately begins uh, to oppose God's servant. Amaziah quickly goes about writing a letter to the king. In fact, he's going to accuse Amos of a conspiracy against the government. And I'll show you. Uh, Let's keep reading. Look at verse number 10. Verse 10 says, Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is unable to endure all his words. For thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. So this chief priest makes two charges against Amos. He charged Amos with with preaching a conspiracy about predicting the death of the king Jeroboam. He charges Amos with, uh, with predicting that Israel itself would be conquered and that its survivors would be exiled. Obviously, Amaziah felt strongly that Amos and his message of judgment had to be silenced. And so he writes the letter to the king. Now, now whether or not uh, he waits for the king to respond and send a letter back to him, uh, it's not really known. I believe it appears that, that uh, the chief priest immediately goes from sending the letter to confronting Amos himself. He confronts Amos and he orders the prophet to get out of the temple. He he orders him to leave Israel and and to go back to his home in Judah. Follow along again in verse number 12 now. It says, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel. For it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. You see, in Amaziah's eyes, it was absolutely essential uh, that God's prophet had to be silenced. Neither the king nor the rest of the audience wanted to hear what Amos had to say. And so the chief priest could only see one solution. Stop the prophet and get rid of him. But here's the thing. (laughs) Amos wasn't about to be stopped. Amos wasn't about to back down. Amos courageously answers Amaziah by, by, by sharing his personal testimony. Look at verse 14. It says, Then Amos replied to Amaziah, I am not a prophet, nor am I a son of a prophet, for I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. 
So in a very straightforward manner, Amos informs the priest that he's not a professional prophet. He's not a son of a prophet. This wasn't his calling. Man, he was just a regular guy. He he was just just a layman. Man, Amos was a rancher and a farmer when the Lord called him. It was the Lord that clearly instructed him to leave his profession so that he could go proclaim the Word of God. It's at this point that the Lord himself had a specific and special word for the chief priest. In fact, look at verse 16. It says, Now, hear the word of the Lord. You are saying you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you speak against the house of Isaac. Now, now because uh, of Amaziah's opposition to God's prophet, man, God was going to unfold a, a five-fold judgment upon the chief priest himself. And he gives that five-fold judgment in verse number 17. Look what it says. It says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, number one, your wife will become a harlot in the city. Number two, your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Number three, your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die upon unclean soil. There's number four. So he's going to die himself. And then the fifth one, moreover, Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. I mean, if Amaziah had only listened to the prophet if he had only heard the warning from God, if he would have listened to the prophet, heard his warning, and then repented of his sins, then he might have been saved and delivered by the mercy of the Lord. In fact, if you look back in chapter 5, you see on at least three different occasions where God says, look at verse number 4. Verse number 4 of chapter 5 says, Seek me that you may live. Then again in verse number 6, seek, seek the Lord that you may live. And then in verse number 14 says, Seek good and not evil that you may live. You see, being a priest, this is exactly what Amaziah should have done. But sadly, he chose to reject the Lord's prophet. He chose to reject the Lord's message. He chose to ignore the warning of the coming judgment. And as a result, he was to bear the full weight of God's condemnation. Which brings the point, anyone who rejects the Lord, anyone who rejects God's holy word will also suffer the penalty of the full weight of God's condemnation. John chapter 3, verse number 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Then it says, But the wrath of God remains on him. But the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, there will be no escape for any of us if we refuse to repent 
and to adhere to the Word of God. If you refuse to repent of your sins and turn to the Lord, then you too, you remain under the weight of His wrath. I want you to think about the implications of that. Whoever does not obey the Son, says, will not see life. In fact, it goes on to say, but the wrath of God remains on you. The only way to remove God's wrath from your life is through repentance. It's in trusting in Jesus. It's in committing your life unto him. It is recognizing that without him, we are worthless. We have no right to anything that is good. But, but while uh, John chapter 3, verse number 36, clearly pictures the wrath of God falling upon those who do not obey him, who do not submit and surrender their lives unto him. Man, aren't we glad for John three sixteen? Because there it clearly says that God loves the world. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, is no longer under the wrath of God, but now you have eternal life. So there it is, my friends, the two options. You're either under the wrath of God because of rebellion, because you refuse to repent and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, or you have eternal life. Eternal life because you put your faith and trust in the Son of God. And so each of us are, are faced with the decision, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with, with the Holy Word of God? Do we reject it? Do we ignore it? If we reject it and we ignore it, then we're rejecting God and we're ignoring God and we're standing in opposition of who He is and, and what He calls for us to do with our lives. But for those of us who, who, who want to love God, who love His Word, who want to submit to God by submitting to his word, who want to put our faith and trust in Jesus, then we are removed from God's wrath and now we're given eternal life. So it is a transition from death and wrath to life and freedom. And so it is today. My question for you is, do you have eternal life in and through Jesus Christ? If not, why not? Why not? Aren't you tired of doing the same thing? Aren't you tired of, of living the same way? Don't you want peace in your life? Don't you want to fully understand the purpose for your existence? Don't you want to know and experience the love of God? If so, would you receive Christ? Trust in Him. Commit yourself unto him. So this morning, I'm so thankful that you took the time to, to, to watch this message and to participate in your own homes. And, and it's sure, it, it is difficult, confusing days. We, we live in a world of uncertainty. But may you know this, although things might seem uncertain to us, although 
things might seem to be changing moment by moment in, in our understanding, may you know that God is not surprised by any of this, that he is sovereign in and through it all. And so, while God is not surprised, and perhaps we are, we can find peace in knowing that he still sits upon his throne. Allow this season in all of our lives to draw you closer to our Lord. Use this as an opportunity to re-engage with the Word of God. Husbands and fathers, use this as an opportunity to lead your family in a time of devotion with God. Open your Bible. Read a portion of Scripture with your family. Pray together. Check out your neighbors. Knock on their doors. Make sure that they have what they need during these days. Love one another. By loving one another, we also demonstrate our great love for God. So with that being said, let me close with our standard benediction, if I may. So may God bless you. May God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you, beneath you to sustain you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will always be with you. Don't be afraid. Go. Glorify God and seek to make his glory known. Amen. We'll see you next time, church.